0: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with an unfortunate flashback. Remember when this happened?
1: Breaking news tonight a bombshell from the FBI director. Eleven days to the election, the feds investigating newly discovered emails related to the Hillary Clinton private server case, found during a separate probe into sexting allegations against her top aide's husband, Anthony Weiner. New information still coming in. Donald Trump seizing on a stunning turn of events.
0: That unprecedented moment no doubt changed the course of history. FBI Director James Comey tossed a giant bucket of gasoline on the simmering flames of mainstream media hysteria over Hillary Clinton's emails, reopening an investigation that had already overshadowed the entire 2016 campaign, and emboldening the rhetoric that America's orange-hued political menace, Donald Trump, and his MAGA devotees and campaign had been spewing for a full year and a half.
2: Hillary Clinton should be in jail for what she did to our national security. The email scam. Crooked Hillary's emails. This was not just extreme carelessness with classified material, which is still totally disqualifying. This is calculated, deliberate, premeditated misconduct. If that were a Republican that did what she did with the emails they would have been in jail 12 months ago. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing.
0: Of course, liter- literally to no one's surprise. Our discount Miss Mussolini and his cronies did not actually care about the proper preservation of official records. Multiple Trump administration officials used personal email accounts at work. Jared Kushner was dumb enough to chat on WhatsApp with the alleged Saudi murder prince. But you know what is just peak hypocrisy? We already knew that our disgraced, twice-impeached former president had a nasty, childish habit of ripping up papers that he didn't like into tiny little pieces, and that the National Archives had received documents that had to be literally taped back together. But the Washington Post has new extensive reporting that Trump's paper shredding by hand was far more widespread and indiscriminate than previously known. And despite multiple admonishments extended throughout his presidency, resulting in special practices to deal with the torn fragments. It is unclear how many records were lost or permanently destroyed through Trump's ripping routine, as well as what consequences, if any, he might face. Hundreds of documents, if not more, were likely torn up, those familiar with the practice say. This is, by the way, very, very illegal. Those documents were not his to destroy. The Presidential Records Act, quote, establishes public ownership of all presidential records, which can be disposed of only after approved by an archivist. Additionally, the Post is also reporting that the National Archives had to retrieve White House records from Mar-a-Lago that should have been turned over to them. Mar-a-Lago, as you know, is not a government property, despite Trump pretending it was the Winter White House. Trump advisors deny any nefarious intent and say the items included correspondence with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, which Trump once described as love letters, as well as a letter left by President Barack Obama for his successor, according to two people familiar with the contents. A Trump spokesman declined to comment to the Post on either story, and the National Archives has confirmed that they retrieved 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago in January. This behavior is even more damning as we continue to learn about Trump's actions on January 6th. There is new reporting from the AP that Trump was so enraptured by the unfolding insurrection that he was confused as to why staffers weren't as excited as he was. But her emails join me now. Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst, Democratic strategist, Juanita Tolliver and Tim Miller, writer at large at the Bulwark. And, you know, Paul, I hate to keep sort of going back over this again, but we keep doing the what if Obama had or what if Clinton had. The Presidential Records Act is a law. But as of now, not only would I be shocked if Trump faced any consequences for literally ripping up publicly owned documents that he wasn't supposed to and sending the pieces to the National Archives or spiriting them off to his house in Florida. Here's what James Comey a year ago had to say. And this is before knowing all the stuff that we know now about Trump. This is what Comey, who knows Trump's criminality firsthand, had to say about what should be done about Trump now. Do you think Joe Biden should pardon Trump as Ford did Nixon?
3: I don't know. He should at least, he should consider it as part of healing the country and getting us to a place where we can focus on things that are going to matter over the next four years. I think Joe Biden's going to have to at least think about that.
0: Now, we reached out to uh, Mr. Comey um, to see if he would up- update his comments as of t- t- you know knowing what he knows now. He did not respond. But I'll ask you to respond, please, Paul.
1: So, Joy, the Presidential Records Act is about transparency. It's designed to ensure accountability. Transparency and accountability are against everything Donald Trump stands for. Throughout his professional life, Trump acts like he hates records, probably because they serve as receipts for his (laughs) bad acts. So in his business life, he insisted on non-disclosure agreements, and in the White House, Now we know he illegally destroyed items that don't actually belong to him. They belong, these records belong to the American people. They're the property of the government of the United States. And Joy, some material has been recovered, but other material may have been placed improperly in burn bags without appropriate review. That stuff is lost forever. Could it be evidence in a criminal case? It could be, but we'll never know. I think it's unlikely to, that we're going to see a prosecution for this conduct because the Presidential Records Act has no enforcement mechanism. If you break the law, there's no remedy.
0: And, and very quickly, for those who are not uh, so inclined and not an attorney and or a former prosecutor, what is a burn bag for those who are unschooled in these matters?
1: So a burn bag is where you place confidential, sensitive information that you want destroyed. It's the government equivalent of a shredder. But it's, there's a process to decide what evidence gets destroyed. It's not the president's decision. The record, White House Records Office has an important role, which apparently Trump just ignored or discounted.
0: I mean, even Nixon, Juanita, didn't have burn bags that we know of, right? I mean, this is—it's so blatant at this point that it becomes comical, but it's also deadly serious because this is a president who is—his lawbreaking has been abetted in many ways by people like the Comeys of the world who have said, yeah, but, you know, because he was president, we have to let everything slide. He can, you know, rent a a, the local old post office in D.C. from the government and make that a private hotel, you know, basically be bribed by foreign officials because every time they swipe their card there, they basically— Paying him. He can do all of that. He can say he wants to turn, you know, Mar-a-Lago into the new Camp David. He can do all of these openly criminal things and break tax laws and re his insurance. It, it just there's nothing he can't do. Meanwhile, the actual committee, the committee that's 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 trying to look at his criminality vis-a-vis January 6th, is using the tactics that would normally be used. To investigate the mob, the committee is employing aggressive tactics typically used against mobsters and terrorists. Investigators have taken a page out of organized crime prosecutions and quietly turned at least six lower-level Trump staffers into witnesses who provided information about their boss's activities. And this is the New York Times is reporting. And I just wonder, Juanita, if, if we're—I don't know where we are, because it doesn't seem that the criminal justice system is capable of dealing with Trump, at least not publicly, and not the way they did with Hillary Clinton on her nothing emails— Is this committee, in your view, stacking up to be a tool of actual accountability?
4: That's what they're trying to do with intention, Joy. And I'm honestly all for it, right? Like, I feel like this is the first benchmark because we know their mandate here is to ensure accountability and prevent this from ever happening again. And that could be through legislation or criminal referrals for those responsible. And I'm so for it that. What I think they're preparing to do is try to make the case to the DOJ. As you said, Joy, like we have seen every signal from the DOJ that they're not already on it. And that should be frightening for a lot of people. While it has not been confirmed whether or not there's an active investigation, the Select Committee seems to be bracing itself for trying to convince the DOJ to prosecute Trump. And so when they're hiring these prosecutors, when they're collecting this evidence, when they're doing these hundreds of interviews, they know that this comes down to the strength of their referrals in order to get him prosecuted. And I also want to point out that in that New York Times article, an attorney said, oh, but what if the GOP tries to do the same thing? What if the GOP tries to leverage these same tactics? And that is an absolute moot point when we just saw the GOP under Trump's leadership attempt a coup. And I assure you, it'll be that much worse if there is no accountability and if these tactics aren't leveraged, because we know the select committee has been met with every type of delay tactic possible, whether through the courts or Trump's direction of his allies. And so they are doing exactly what needs to be done right now. I mean, Tim, we know the answer
0: to what they will do. Let let me play a Rubio because they're going to do it. Okay. let's first of all, they're going to. I mean, Newt Newt Gingrich already said, oh, wait till we're back in charge. We're going to investigate Hunter Biden. We're going to investigate Mrs. Biden. We're going to find out what she's doing in school. Like they've already made it clear they're going to launch witch witch hunts against Democrats. We know that is what they would do if they get back in power. And if they do that on the House side, where the true, you know, Trump MAGA people are, Here's what the Senate will do. Here's uh, our friend Marco Rubio. You look up weak in the dictionary. His, his, his picture practically pops up. Here he is, unable to say the words Trump was wrong about the insurrection. Watch. Do you agree with Mike Pence?
5: Well, if uh, President Trump runs for re-election, I believe he would defeat Joe Biden. And I don't want Kamala Harris to have the power as vice president to overturn that election. So Donald Trump was wrong. Well, as I said, I just don't think a vice president has that power. Tim. (laughs) Well, there must be something
3: down the water in Florida because Ron DeSantis couldn't answer that same exact question today either. Um, Seems like a pretty simple one, whether the vice president can overturn the election, whether Donald Trump was wrong. Did you notice one tick there by Senator Rubio? He referred to Donald Trump as President Trump. Correct. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I mean, Correct. this is part of being in a cult. When you call the person who lost, who is a wedding DJ in Mar-a-Lago right now, Mr. President, and you call the actual president Joe, right? Like that is a sign that, that he is in a cult and he's signaling to the, to the supporters that he's with them, that there might there was something fishy about this election. Rubio, you know, the, Rubio was supposed to be one of the ones, you know, when he ran for re-election the last time, in 2016, you might remember this. He ran saying that he wants Ford to put it in there because he will hold him Clinton accountable or he'll hold Correct. Donald Trump accountable. That was his whole mm-hmm. pitch. And, and he's totally thrown that by the wayside um, in, in favor of this. And there's no amount of evidence that could come out. Right. I, you know, and Donald Trump said it himself. Uh, you know, we don't need the January 6th committee to know that Donald Trump tried to overthrow the election illegally. He said it mm-hmm. himself in a statement just last week. And, yeah. and so, you know, these guys are trying to get around it and they're being allowed to get around it. I, I think by going back to the top of the segment, I, I think an imbalance in the treatment of Donald Trump's actions, which from from the mainstream media and mainstream sources via what we saw in 2016 uh, with, with regards to Ms. Clinton.
0: Oh, 100 percent. I think the media the, just compare the hysteria over Hillary Clinton's risotto emails over everything that Trump has done collectively. I think it's pretty clear. And by the way, sorry, Tim, when Mark Rubio said that, he meant that he'd volunteer to be his accountant, not hold him accountable or give him a, a nice massage if his shoulders get tired. I think that's God, what he, miss, he meant. See, miss so you missed that. You <laughs> got to get the subtleties of what Rubio is saying. He's a sophisticated politician. Um, let's talk about Ivanka Trump for just a moment. And I, I want to go back to you on this, Paul. We're sneaking closer to the time when the January 6th committee is going to have to call a Trump. They're going to have to subpoena a Trump. Could she wind up being the one? Ivanka Trump, according to testimony, went on to make at least two tenacious attempts during January 6th to reason with her father as staffers were bombarded with messages from Trump allies begging him to quell the violence. This is the AP's reporting. Her proximity to Trump could provide the committee with direct access to what Trump was doing during these crucial crucial three hours when he was not stopping the insurrection. Is this the window where they have where the January 6th committee finally subpoenas someone with the surname Trump?
1: Uh, I think so, especially when we're seeing their hardcore aggressive tactics, unlike what it looks like the Justice Department is doing. So in the real world, prosecutors all in your family, your mom, your kids, they do that all the time. So I wouldn't be surprised, again, if this aggressive House committee does that. We don't know that Ivanka was down and dirty with Trump, because so far we haven't heard any evidence of criminal activity on her part on January 6th. But she was definitely down with him, right? She was very proximate to him. Lindsey Graham said he called Ivanka pleading that the president had to do something, and she indicated that she was on it. So what did the president know? What was he thinking? Ivanka knows, and She could spill it if the committee subpoenas her and makes her testify.
0: Uh, this should be very interesting to watch. And given the things that Trump has said about Ivanka in the past, never say down and dirty and Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump in the same sentence again <laughs> ever, Paul. That's just, uh, uh, no, no, it's going to give people nightmares. Paul Butler, Juanita Tolliver, Tim Miller. Ooh, Lord Jesus. Uh, up next on The Readout, Europe at a critical crossroads, the president of France tries to talk some sense into Putin as President Biden meets with one of America's top allies at the White House. Also, the new push among some Democratic governors to ease school mask mandates, why and is it safe tonight's readout democracy defenders come to us comes to us from Texas she's fighting back against draconian new voter suppression laws living out of a van traveling all across the state to get voters registered and tonight's absolute worst on the far other hand is just getting started but he's already hit a new low we can only imagine what rock bottom looks like the readout continues after this
5: Hi everyone it's Katie Fang.
2: Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The weekend.
0: We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening.
3: It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in.
0: Conversation, we begin
2: and that
6: you continue all week long.
2: The weekend, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
0: I want to make one thing perfectly clear. I just don't go around advocating for war at all. In fact, back in 2003, I quit my local news job because I strongly opposed the war in Iraq. War is awful. And it's the troops and frankly innocent locals who wind up paying the highest cost. This weekend, NBC News got yet another reminder of that. According to a US official with direct knowledge, the Russian military is preparing for a large siege invasion of Ukraine that could include a capture of Kyiv. While Putin has made no official decision yet, he has positioned 110,000 forces at the border with the goal of getting to 150,000. They're equipped with a stunning arsenal of weapons. Officials warn that if Putin were to go through with a full-scale invasion, nearly 50,000 civilians could be killed or wounded. Between 5,000 and 25,000 Ukrainian troops would be killed or wounded. And between 3,000 and 10,000 Russian troops would be killed or wounded. An unprovoked attack would leave one to five million people as either refugees or internally displaced. After a meeting with the new German chancellor today, President Biden told reporters that it would be wise for Americans to leave Ukraine. French President Macron, who spent nearly six hours with Vladimir Putin, told reporters that the coming days are crucial. For decades, this kind of unsolicited aggression would have prompted a bipartisan rebuke, but not anymore. That's because a new reality is surfacing among Republicans. One where indifference to such aggression by international autocrats is totally cool. Naturally, the loudest and most grating voice in the room comes from CIA reject and retired bow tie aficionado Tucker Carlson, who has ratcheted up his pro-Putin claims that NATO is irrelevant and China, you know, the one with the foreign looking people, is far more dangerous. Naturally, he's found common cause with Chinless Missouri Senator and self-proclaimed masculinity czar Josh Hawley.
7: At this point, NATO exists primarily to torment Vladimir Putin, who, whatever his many faults, has no intention of invading Western Europe. We're really going to fight a war over some corrupt Eastern European country that is strategically irrelevant to us? With everything else? Has anyone ever explained to you in clear terms what the point of NATO is at this point, 30 years (laughs) after the fall of the Soviet Union?
3: You know, I think that there is a lot of, shall we say, legacy thinking about NATO, where it just sort of runs of its own steam. Here's what the point needs to be. We need to say to our NATO allies, they need to do more in their own defense.
0: What these faux populist boarding school boys aren't telling you is that China would probably love it if we ignored Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because that would mean they could pull a Putin in Taiwan. And there's another reason why these chuds are parroting Kremlin propaganda. That's what Trumpolini would do. John Bolton, perennial bad guy and the orange golfer's former national security advisor, told Newsweek Trump would have given Ukraine away had he won the election. He added, I think in a second Trump term, the Russians would already be in Kiev. Carlson, Hawley and others are simply reflecting a broader position within the base of the Trump party, which is that whatever is good for Putin Is good for America first. Joining me now is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former director for European Affairs at the U.S. National Security Council and senior advisor to Vote Vets. And David Jamali, Newsweek editor at large and a former FBI double agent. Um, Thank you both for being here. And Colonel Vindman, I want to start with you because, by the way, for for folks who don't remember, today is the two year anniversary of you being fired um, for having testified uh, and told the truth in front of the committee that was impeaching Donald Trump. So that uh, I will note for all is today's anniversary for you. Um, and now we face this situation where the thing Trump hated the most, which is or well, not hated the most, he hated a lot of things, but NATO was something he really wasn't didn't seem to be in favor of. That idea that NATO is irrelevant and not useful has taken hold of the base of the Republican Party, as evidenced by Tuckums and Josh Hawley. In your view, what would be the consequences if the U.S. were to say, NATO, you're on your own? This is, not, this is something that's not strategically important to us anymore.
5: Sure. Thanks for having me on, Joy. Uh, I'll try not to dwell on the fact that this is the T-year anniversary of my uh, removal from the White House. <clears throat> but I think uh, this would be very consequential. I've described it as seismic. Um, the, the consequences of a Russian attack and a, a lack of response from the U.S. and NATO would uh, show that. It's really not a functional alliance. I think in, if we look at this from a kind of a historical standpoint, if we look back to the Cold War, if Russia con- had conducted a, a deployment of this sort, tens of thousands of troops on the border, we would be we'd have all sorts of forces mobilized to defend. We are, there's a lot of wishful thinking and a lot of speculation on what those limits uh, for, uh, for Vladimir Putin and his aspirations are. I think Article 5 is valid. I think Article 5 deters Putin, but we can't know without certainty. What we do know is that there are he has the capabilities to push further and we should treat that seriously. If these are supposed to be legitimate alliances, then they should treat threats seriously. And right now, we're probably not quite doing enough Uh, for as for the geopolitical situation. It's it would be frightening because right now there is no such thing as NATO in in the Pacific. There's a much, much looser. A series of alliances that are coming together and the bar for uh, for other adversaries to act is even lower there. So if the U.S. is not willing to live up to its most critical alliances, then I think everything else is up for grabs.
0: Right. And so the thing is, that we, you know, you know, I've talked about this before. Um, we've, we've talked on camera and off about the idea of Donald Trump preferring these sort of strongman states. Right. So that each one is a strongman state in and of itself. And whatever they do, they do. And whether they're aggressive, whether they're, you know, anti-U.S., it doesn't matter as long as they're a strongman. He respects that, whether it's North Korea or Russia or whatever. And that's who he gravitated toward. And so we kind of get why Trump loved Putin. But you tweeted um, a tweet there this this weekend that that asked the question, why do his why do his base, you know, who who are basically Republicans, mainly Republicans, Christian evangelicals who came into the party through Reagan in in by and large part, which was highly, you know, adversarial toward the Soviet Union. Why do they love Russia so much? Or not Russia, but why do they love the Kremlin and Putin so much? Talk a little bit about that.
7: Yeah, you know, there's this idea that there's somehow Russian ideology sort of fits up with this Republican belief, this rolling back of progressivism. And let me just start with the Russian perspective. Look, I spent three very difficult years working against the Russian GRU, military intelligence. I'm not coming this from a diplomatic standpoint. I'm not coming from this from an academic standpoint. I sat across the room from these, these people. And I can tell you, Joy, there's one thing and only one thing that drives Russian ideology, and that is the retraction of the United States, as Alex was saying, from Europe, from Central Asia, they don't want us there. They want a return to Russian expansionism. That's it. On the other side, here in the United States, there's this belief that because Russia, I mean, I'm surmising here, but because Russia is an overwhelmingly white country, that I think that people look at that and say, hey, they must have values that align with ours. But the reality is that Russians don't really go to church in the same numbers that Americans do. They have a higher rate of abortion. There's nothing about their society. My God, Reagan called Russia godless communists. I mean, there's nothing about Russia beyond the fact that they're white that aligns with conservatism. But the Russians, Joy, are happy to use anyone that will cause chaos in the United States. And the reason that this is happening today with Russia on the precipice of going into Ukraine, in my opinion, is very simple. It's because they see a window of opportunity and that window of opportunity is in large part because of the chaos that is here in their main adversary, the United States. And that is perhaps the biggest threat to Ukraine is the instability that exists here in the United States.
0: Yeah, let me just read from Just Security, a piece that they posted. It said Russia has both turned a blind eye to far right paramilitarism within its own borders and actively cultivated neo Nazism in the West. Hmm. These decisions align with its broader project to sow discord in Western democracies and influence transcontinental relations, despite its relatively weak military and economy. So I'll go to you, Colonel v- Lieutenant Colonel Vidman, on this. This pre this sort of idea among the the Tucker world that if we just leave Russia alone and stop bothering them, they won't be aggressive toward West. Western Europe, that they're only will they only want, you know, Ukraine back and they should let them have it. If, if the if the West were to just let them have Ukraine, which doesn't want to be part of their sphere of influence anymore, it, are they are are they not wrong to say that Russia would be satisfied and would be a benign power?
5: That's a preposterous notion. Frankly, uh, Tucker Carlson should not be taken seriously. He has no clue of what's going on. He's he's uh, appears with uh, dictators on a regular basis and uh, fawns over them. Um, I mean, that, would, that I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about, uh, you know, um, Hungarian dictators for that matter, too. But there's something else to be said about a, a broader class of, of uh, conservatives that think that if we just let go on this Ukraine in NATO si- situation, that that's going to be the end of it. That is far from the yeah. truth. The fact is that Russia has a series of different objectives that it needs one of them is Ukraine back into Russia's sphere of influence. Another one is a fractured Europe, uh, NATO alliance, a fractured Europe. Yep. And in yep. such a construct, Russia could coerce, can use its power symmetrically and asymmetrically to extract all sorts of concessions. So it is not going to be the end of it. And I think this, no- yep. this notion of just going back and saying it's OK, R- Ukraine will not be part of NATO will in no way alleviate the situation. This is about Ukraine. Yeah. This about uh, destroying uh, kind of the, uh, a powerhouse of Europe and the Euro-Atlantic alliance for Russia to contend with.
0: And, and this America First crowd does not believe in that alliance and doesn't believe in the power of the West uh, acting together. It is a strange world we're living in. Alexander Vindman, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and Naveed Jamali, thank you both very much. And be sure to check out Jahan Jones's excellent article about the right's really weird soft spot for Vladimir Putin at msnbc.com slash do check it out. Still ahead, governor's orders lifting the school mask mandates in three states are sparking debate among parents and educators. We'll talk with the head of the New Jersey Teachers Association and Dr. Vin Gupta about this tricky balancing act. Stay with us.
3: Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening, evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election.
2: We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh, yeah, that, that I actually care about.
3: That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Shinsaki. Saki.
1: Have you ever seen the house
7: this dysfunctional?
2: Rachel Maddow.
7: If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it?
2: Monday's Back to Back.
4: Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the
0: statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What what do you think it means?
2: Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC.
8: Well, we're, we're all we're all
6: making choices. Yeah. Yeah, so, look, yeah. look around you, Governor. You're in Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
8: Breathe the room, buddy.
0: That Betty right there is an icon. Virginia Governor and Trump in training Glenn Youngkin got schooled this weekend about ongoing public concerns about COVID. That lesson being that Virginia, especially the heavily Democratic city of Alexandria, is not Florida. And so his awful little mission to tear down these masks for no other reason than to be a mini Ron DeSantis, Maybe an uphill battle. That doesn't mean masks aren't coming off in other parts of the country, though. In New Jersey, Delaware, and Connecticut, Democratic governors have set timelines for mandatory masks to come off in schools and childcare settings in the coming weeks, citing a decline in COVID cases and high vaccination rates. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy maintains that masking is an important tool to prevent the spread of COVID and says districts and child care providers will still be able to decide whether they want to impose a mask mandate should community conditions in- require it. Joining me now is Sean Spiller, president of the New Jersey Education Association, and Dr. Vin Gupta, MSNBC medical contributor and critical care pulmonologist and friend of the show. So let's get into this. And Mr. Spiller, thank you so much for being here. Um, Your organization represents nearly 200,000 public school employees in the state of New Jersey. And this was the statement that came out today. And so we are cautiously optimistic that the current statewide school mask mandate can be safely relaxed in the near future, assuming current trends continue. Talk to me about what, um, feedback you're getting from educators and school employees about this, about the relaxing of these mandates. Are people scared? Are they happy? Like, wh- what's the status?
9: Well, thanks, uh, Joy, for having me on, first and foremost. And um, I I think, you know, there's nobody that's that's certainly happy in in this pandemic and a lot of these things that we're facing. I I think there are absolutely a lot of people who are fearful, uh, rightfully so, or we're coming through an unprecedented moment uh, with a lot of stress. And we've been focused on the social, emotional health of our students and certainly our colleagues. Uh, We've always said, though, from the start that we've got to look at the data, we've got to follow the science at times that has led to more relaxation of rules and at times, uh, quite frankly, more stringent uh, use of the mitigation measures that we have mask wearing being one of them. What we've been very fortunate here in New Jersey is we've had a governor who's who's believed in following that science, following the data, and we will continue to press that. We know that looking a month out, no one can predict exactly what things will look like. We're all pleased to see how things are trending. Uh, But should anything change? Should it look different at that time or even in the future? uh, It shouldn't be a political decision to take a mask off, and it certainly shouldn't be a political decision to put them back on.
0: But to stay with you for just a moment, I ask whether people are happy about it because it seems like there are two things that are sort of working at the same time with COVID. You have the fatigue that people feel with doing all of the right things. Those who have been doing the right things are like exhausted by they're exhausted by not eating indoors They're exhausted by having to mask up even when they're outdoors. They're exhausted by having to do all the things when so many people are doing nothing and not getting vaccinated even. And at the same time, there is still a lot of fear, especially among you know, parents even, you know, that we know that aren't even on our team that have young kids. So what's the balance there? Are, are these teachers, in, by and large, feeling nervous to be unmasked in a room with a bunch of unmasked kids?
9: I, I think the answer simply is yes. You know, I think people are very nervous. And, and someone myself with two young kids, I understand the dynamic with those who you know, are not eligible for the vaccine yet and some of the other challenges that are still out there. Um, you know the the answer to that is, is, of course, we have to keep looking at what does that data tell us. Are we seeing anything because of a decision? Should it go through like this in the future, where we see the case numbers change, where we see uh, the transmission occurring in schools? You know, we've got to adapt quickly and say, hey, follow the science, governor, follow follow the data, and mask wearing should be an appropriate use of of, of, of a tool that can help us mitigate the uh, the spread. So, you know, all options have to remain on the table. The governor has noted that, but, but people are afraid. People are scared. And, and you know, it's yeah. unfortunate that it did turn so political or maybe we would have been to a place sooner where we could all be you know, making easier decisions. But unfortunately, not the case.
0: Wouldn't that be nice? You know, Dr. Gupta, the thing is that that's happened is it's clear that the sort of smart politics for governors and the safe politics is permission is to say you have permission. You're vaccinated. Take off your mask. Live your life. Right. That's the that's the political decision that a lot of governors are making. And in places like Florida, it's like super permissive, the most permissive possible. You know, it's fine. But at the same time, you still do have outbreaks like things like Omicron. I will note that the states that are relaxing these max mandates, the Democratic states, these are some of the most vaccinated states in the country. Let's just put it up here. New Jersey has a 73 percent vaccination rate. You know, Connecticut is 77 percent. The U.S. average is 64 percent. Delaware, 67 percent. Is there a difference in your mind between states that are highly vaccinated making moves like this to ease mask mandates and the low vaccination states, particularly in the south?
8: Joy, good evening. You know, that's an interesting question because I, I do think across the country, say, come April 1st with warmer drier, humid air, actually, spring and summer, and we're going to see a reprieve across the country. But come wintertime, Q4 2022, states with low vaccine rates are going to experience something that they just experienced over the past two winters. So this is about what's going to happen in the future, more so than what's going to happen in the immediate term. Having said that, it's important for all your viewers to listen out there, especially for those who have not gotten their kids vaccinated. Lots of parents have yet to move on that that uh, pediatric hospitalizations as of today I'm speaking to you from an ICU pediatric and an adult ICU But pediatric hospitalizations are still at 500 hospitalizations day over day that's double joy than what it was in the delta wave and prior wave so we're still coming off of that things are getting better yeah. we're important for people to recognize that it's still dangerous out there but I do like what governor murphy did March 15th April 1st time frame starting to relax these conditions because if we need to turn them back on come winter time, at least we have that credibility.
0: And very quickly, so March 7th will be New Jersey. March 31st will be Delaware, Connecticut. Ned Lamont recommended the state end the mask mandate by February 28th. So that's the earliest of, of them. But I do want to talk about that, because what I'm concerned about at this point, I'm done arguing with people who don't want to get vaccinated, you know, li- live your life. But I am concerned that the unvaccinated are going to overwhelm our hospital systems and collapse them, quite frankly. is our, What is the state, from what you're seeing, of our healthcare system overall? And if there's another huge surge in the winter, Dr. Gupta, can our national—we don't have a national. Health system, but our statewide health systems handle it?
8: The answer is no, because Joy, especially come next winter, we expect flu to come back with the resurgence. Because let's be clear here there are no restrictions. There are no restrictions on indoor dining. There's no restrictions on school closures. You name it. We're actually living in a pretty normal environment. Yes, some places say let's mask up, but there are no restrictions. Do I expect Q4 2022 fundamentally we're in a better position to handle a surge? No, we've lost. Over 15,000 people just this past week. I'm in an ICU that's been constantly stressed. Military's been deployed. This has not fundamentally changed this reality. It will not change the next six months.
0: That's what I'm more worried about. At this point, I think we have to save the health system, whatever that takes. We're going to have you come back and talk about that, because we need to start thinking strategically, how do we save our health care system? Because these unvaxxed people, they, they moving. Uh Sean Spiller, thank you so much. Really great to meet you. We'll have you back as well. Thank you both very much. Tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, spotlighting another readout democracy defender. She is a dedicated political activist traveling across Texas in a van to register as many voters as she can. We'll be right back. Breaking news tonight in the fight to protect access to the ballot, the U.S. Supreme Court cleared the way for Alabama to use its new congressional redistricting map, putting on hold a lower court ruling that it violated the Voting Rights Act by denying black voters a new district. It's the latest hostility to voting rights from the court, which gutted the Voting Rights Act back in 2013 and is now even more right wing, eliminating the requirement for states with a history of voter suppression to get federal preclearance for changes to voting laws, including Texas, ground zero in turning the former president's big lie into active voter suppression, with the draconian Senate Bill 1 passed last year, even as Democratic state lawmakers fled the state to stop it. But elected officials aren't the only ones fighting to defend our democracy. We have democracy defenders. Yes, it is regular folks going above and beyond fighting to ensure each citizen's voice is heard, even if it means living in a van to do it. That's exactly what native Texan Taylor Coleman set out to do, living out of her van named Barb to register voters across the Lone Star State, helping navigate, helping them navigate draconian, the draconian new rules. It's no small feat, but a necessary one, given the lengths that Texas Republicans have gone to restrict voter access. The new law makes it a felony for local election officials to send unsolicited applications for a mail-in ballot. However, it's okay under the law, for politicians and campaigns to do the very same thing. See how that works? Since hypocrisy's pen name is actually Republican. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, for instance, sent mail-in ballot applications, even though he helped ban elections officials from doing the exact same thing. So did U.S. Representative Dan Crenshaw, sending out pre-filled absentee ballot applications to seniors, saying all they had to do was sign, stamp, and mail it in. Tonight's readout, Democracy Defender Taylor Coleman joins me now. And Taylor, let's talk about this because the laws sure are different in your state for people like the governor and lieutenant governor and Republican Congress people than they are for regular ordinary elections officials. Interesting. Talk about what you're doing because I understand you guys are you're gonna be joining with Black Voters Matter. You're gonna have a GOTV campaign, you're gonna to be touring HBCUs. Talk a little bit about what you're doing.
6: Yeah, I mean, number one, thank you uh, so, so much for having me. Uh, There definitely does seem to be uh, different rules for uh, the Republican leadership of this state uh, versus regular voters. Uh, You know, you pointed out how Dan Patrick, uh, who, you know, not just helped, but really ushered that law through the Senate. He's the president of the Texas State Senate um, and also Dan Crenshaw. Um, you know, using uh, their own uh, political offices to send out vote-by-mail applications um, when no longer can these nonpartisan officials um, automatically send out applications to um, people who are eligible, like those over 65. Um, So it's been really unfortunate to see the impacts um, of this bill, uh, which is why, you know, like you said, I'm living in my Van Barb, uh, learning, frankly, a lot of these laws as I go. Uh, you know, I, I work campaigns for a living and I feel like even for me, uh, it is a, a struggle to, to make sure that, you know, I'm doing everything uh, correctly the way I'm supposed to be doing that. Um, and I'm excited to partner uh, with, you know, some groups that are on the ground and have been uh, doing this work for such a long time, uh, like Black Voters Matter who will be doing um, a early vote rally, um, you know, before the March 1st primaries uh, heading to HBCUs um, across the state. So very excited to participate in that, Uh, not just to, you know, get, um, you know, young voters out to the polls for this primary, but also take the opportunity to educate them um, about a lot of these new laws and, and how they impact them and their loved ones.
0: Yeah, and you know, we've heard some stories. I mean, there, there's a Houston story about a 95 year old World War II veteran who never missed a vote, suddenly having his application to vote rejected two times. He first registered in the 1940s when the rules didn't require a social security number or a driver's license. Now he's had to submit updated voter ID information multiple times before his voting application could be processed. Talk about some of what you're hearing from voters. You know, what are, what kind of pitfalls are they facing trying to navigate this new law, which you said you're even having to learn about on the, on the, on the way?
6: Absolutely. You know, that story that you mentioned, uh, you know, we we all saw that firsthand. Uh, It ran here on the local news about the World War II veteran um, who has always, you know, been been mailing in his ballot. And of course, the rules uh, this year make it a bit harder. Um, And that's just one of many. Uh, You know, there are so many uh, rejections happening in in counties, uh, you know, some of the largest counties across the state. Um, And also, you know, what we haven't gotten to yet is that Uh, The laws that are forcing some of these rejections are also going to impact returned ballots. Um, So just as there was confusion about whether or not to include your driver's license or your your social security number on your application, um, if you uh, mix that up on your ballot, your ballot can be rejected. Um, So there are just so many different ways in which uh, there have been obstacles uh, placed in between Americans and their ballot. Uh, here in Texas, and and it's really unfortunate. And I also think you know the the confusion uh, you know that are, is arising from these laws. It's it's not just you know me and you know the the voters, but the county elections yeah. officials hmm. are confused. You know, I've I've visited with some um, county officials who um, you know they're they're concerned if if they you know go out of their way to help people uh, resolve mistakes on their ballots, like you mentioned earlier. These are state jail felonies that these officials be, can, yeah. be can be charged with. They can be charged with a crime. So it's just yeah. it's it is, yeah, so it's so it's just a very, a very clear um effort to 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 put obstacles in front of the ballot box. Absolutely. Uh, which and is intimidating very voters. unfortunate uh, and, to see.
0: And we know it is deliberate. Democracy Defender Taylor Coleman, great to meet you. Thank you. And good luck out there with Barb. Stay safe. Appreciate you. Thank All you right, so and stick much. Ar- Thank you. And uh, stick around, everybody, because bullies are bad. But bullies holding public office are truly the absolute worst. That's next. Now that he's the entire governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin is demonstrating that nothing is beneath the dignity of his office. And to prove that point, his campaign launched a scathing attack this weekend on a teenage high school student. I kid you not. On Saturday, 17-year-old Ethan Lynn tweeted a story from Richmond's public radio station, VPM, which reported that Governor Yunkin might get rid of an educational initiative that teaches the history of enslaved people at Virginia's executive mansion. The story itself describes how the director of historic interpretation and education at the mansion had resigned after finding her office had been emptied. But it also included a detail that Yunkin denies that the education space in the building, intended to be used as a classroom to teach about slavery, was being reconverted back into a family room by the governor's staff. Now, as I mentioned, Youngkin's spokesperson denies this, though it wouldn't be entirely out of character for the governor who's made it a priority to whitewash American history and ban so-called divisive lessons on race. But before they even corrected the record, the official Team Youngkin account on Twitter issued a nasty ad hominem attack, not on the reporter of the story, oh no, which would be bad enough, but on Lynn, the high school student who tweeted about it. The Yunkin team posted a photograph of Lynn with former Governor Ralph Northam, along with Northam's infamous and racist yearbook photo showing him and another person wearing blackface and a Ku Klux Klan robe. The caption reads, here's a picture of Ethan with a man that had a blackface KKK photo in his yearbook. In other words, The campaign account for the sitting governor of Virginia smeared a kid in high school simply because they didn't like what he tweeted. That trolly tweet remained online for 12 hours before it was taken down. And even after it was deleted, a young and operative continued to blast the high school kid, labeling him a Democrat Party official and a source of official Democrat Party communications. Ostensibly because he's volunteered on Democratic campaigns because he's a kid, but he cares about politics. The operative suggested that team Youngkin only belatedly realized their blunder saying that when they learned that Lynn was actually a minor, the tweet was removed. So the problem with that is that Lynn identified himself as a high school student on his public Twitter bio. So maybe they should have maybe read that before deciding to lash out at him. Needless to say, attacking a juvenile online makes Youngkin look pretty darn juvenile himself. And despite his attempts at damage control, he's taken little responsibility and offered no apology. In fact, He's actually blaming an unnamed staffer for sending what he calls an unauthorized tweet. Now, remember, this is the same guy who had a meltdown when the news media accurately reported accurately reported that his own teenage son tried to vote illegally in the November election while underage, not once, but twice. I am
3: a a little bit frustrated that it's become, you know, the media paid so much attention to it. It's my 17 year old son
9: and I really would like everybody to leave my family alone.
0: Oh, yet now Youngkin doesn't have the decency to apologize to a 17-year-old kid who his campaign viciously attacked on Twitter. And that is why Virginia governor and DeSantis in miniature Glenn Youngkin is once again tonight's absolute worst. And that is tonight's readout.